Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner. And if you haven't heard this series, where the hell have you been? The idea is very simple. We take a very interesting person out to lunch to a very interesting restaurant. We order a load of food, we order a load of wine, and eventually they talk and they talk and they talk. In series one, I've lunched with a whole host of guests from Spice Girl Mel C to Turner Prize winning artist Grayson Perry and even the star of Fifty Shades of Grey, Jamie Dornan. Now, the thing is, Out to Lunch episodes are about 45 minutes long, but we record for anywhere between two and three hours a time. That means there are many, many juicy offcuts that haven't yet been released. So to wrap up this first run, I thought I'd treat you to what we call an Out to Lunch mixed grill of guests. Varied, substantial and tasty. You won't go away hungry. We opened Out to Lunch with the actor Richard E. Grant and I took him to a brilliant Italian restaurant called Sartoria mostly because I knew they'd be serving white truffles and because famously Richard E. Grant sniffs everything and he really did get his nose stuck into them. In the next few minutes you'll hear us discuss his fame, his deep desire to be Jewish and of course a bit more on his great love for Barbara Streisand. But at times I had to be careful it didn't turn into him interviewing me. So if you're, what was it like being the son of somebody famous? So my mother was Claire Rayner, for anybody who doesn't know that. I didn't really have any, anything to compare it against, is the, is the reality. It was my normal. Fame from the outside is very different from on the inside, as you know. Because, you know, when it hit you in the late 80s, did it take you by surprise? Uh, or was it something you'd actually wanted? I've never had that kind of fame that people have who are in a regular soap opera where you walk down the street and people shout out the name of the person because I, 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 I know Richard Wilson and when he was all... If you walk down yeah. the street with him, yeah, people would shout out, hello, Victor Meldrew. They might not necessarily have known his name, but they knew his catchphrases or who, who his character was and he couldn't go anywhere. So I think that is a certain kind of fame that I've never, I've never had. Uh, have you not had the experience where you're walking down the street and say your bits of your family are behind you? Yeah. And they describe a bow wave. So what happens is... It's a bow wave? Well, as you, as you walk forward, people don't look at you or reference you yourself until the moment they're right past you. So that you, you see a ripple of, of, of recognition, but it's all behind you. Does that not... That must be going on. Um, oh, I've had that thing, which I'm sure you've had, where people look you straight in the face and then nudge the person next to them and go... Yes. That sort of good nudging, nudging gesture. Nudging goes on. Yeah. Or, or they, they or... say it's him. Yes. Right to your face as though you're not there. <laughs> yeah. That has changed. People used to take ask for your autograph, as I'm sure you know, and now it's a but, selfie. And if you don't oblige instantly, even if you're in the middle of you know, a doctor's appointment or something, people take great umbrage. I have a simple rule with it. I'll say yes as long as they actually know who I am. Who do they think you are? Marco Pierre White, or perhaps Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen gone to seed. 
Um, <laughs> who's, who's your lookalikey? Uh, Do people say you were brilliant in Four Weddings and a Funeral? Uh, no, but they ask me if I'm related or the brother of Hugh Grant. And the other one is, are you related or are you Geoffrey Rush? Geoffrey Rush? Yeah. That's a really curious one. Well, he's a, you know, he's a long face and he's grizzled and coming up 60 or whatever. And he's an I. actor. And he's an actor. Which I think is why when people look at me and go, uh, food person, big, hair, yeah. Marco. Where does lunch take you up to? I'm going to the Groucho Club. Where are you going? Um, I'm going home. Uh, Where do you live? Brixton, South London. Mm-hmm. To sort I've out. heard of it. Have you? Very nice. Lived there 25 years. My, my late parents thought I'd emigrated because I was brought up in northwest London like all good Jewish boys. Right. And, Is there uh, a big Jewish community in Brixton? No. Well, actually, surprisingly, when, when we went to primary school, you know, when we started primary school with my kids, now obviously well beyond that, um, it turned out that all the godless Jews were actually parents at that school. We practically had what's called a minion. In Hold the on, are place. you a godless Jew? Is that utterly how you identify godless. yourself? Oh, utterly godless, yes. But I am Jewish. I'm culturally Jewish. I'm noisy and all those So things. do you notice a difference that I am not Jewish? Um, you're, you're quite close to being Jewish, Richard. Am I? <laughs> That's the best thing you could say to me. Are you oh, just humouring me? Have you secretly me? been hankering after being Jewish? Not, no, not secretly. Not secretly I have, at all. I have longed, I've looked through all my genealogy to find if I have any Jewish... No, but I have seriously, because I've, I've, all the people that I most admire and the people that I've idolised have all been Jewish. Jewish girls? Jewish girls. And I didn't marry one, but I should have. So my poor wife is a Scottish Gentile, yeah. and she just has had to live with this, my obsession with Barbara. Well, and she knows if Barbara had to say, Richard, come, I'd be gone. I'd say, ring off, I'm, I'm yours. And when I met her, she's when I met her, the list, I met um, her husband, James Brolin. Yeah. I said, how do you cope with this mayhem that's around your wife's life all the time? He said, I'm real laid back. <laughs> I said, I have to tell you, Mr. Brolin, that when you got engaged to Barbara Streisand, I felt like I'd been stabbed in my back. And you don't, not, don't need to call security. But I said, I thought, this, this is my chance. Now it's gone. <laughs> he said, you should see somebody about this. I said, I have. <laughs> Did you? Did you spend any of your sessions discussing Barbara? I did because he... that What... The shrink said to me is that these adolescence obsessions usually pass that sort of poster phase that you go through when you are hero worshipping somebody. That passes by the time you're 19 or 20. He said, You shouldn't still have it in middle age. Oh, I think you should. What is that about? And I said, I don't fucking care what it's about. I love her. Dear Richard E. Grant, they're waxing lyrical about a subject very close to his heart. We're sticking with the Italian theme for now because I needed to find somewhere to take the superb actor Stanley Tucci for lunch and I went for Italian again. I went to Locanda Locatelli, which is the restaurant of the Italian chef who's been living in Britain for a very long time, Giorgio Locatelli. He does amazing things with pasta and I know that Stanley loves his pasta. It was the obvious place to take him. Plus, Stanley's a man who knows his food. If you haven't got it, I'd highly recommend his cookbook, The Tucci Table. And his film, Big Night, has become iconic in food circles. So I asked Stanley to give us some insights into two particular scenes. The scene where you cook the omelette yeah. in real time. Yeah. How many times was it shot? Um, we did seven takes, from what I can remember. Two of those were aborted halfway through. Because something fucked up, whatever, I don't remember. 
five we kept. I never had any coverage, so I never had any. I never. So it was I always going to be one shot. It was always going to be one camera way, in the corner. It, way, it wasn't like I could have no, four cameras over here. No, and cut. It was a way. I, I, it was an experiment, which is a stupid thing to do on your first movie, but it worked. <laughs> the experiment was partly, if we know characters really well, if we get to know them really well, and we care about them. They don't have to say anything by the end of the film. They have to do... Yes, thank you. They don't have to do anything. More wine incoming. All we do... All we do... All we have to do is watch them, and we know their thoughts. Because we follow them, and everything's been set up properly. Or, to put it another way, if you're not interested in this scene at the end of your movie... Yeah. The other Fuck 140 yeah. minutes that have come before are an absolute fucking disaster. Right, exactly, yes, exactly. Then, then I failed. So... If you can do that, and I am a big believer in this, also in the theater, too, that if I know you and I have the right actor, I should know exactly what you're feeling just by watching your back, even if you're really far upstage. The other food question, and I think this is sensitive, is the, the, the timpano. So can you describe exactly what a timpano is? I think it's a heart attack, but... <laughs> A timpano is, well, there are so many different versions of it, right? So my family called it timpano, but actually it should be pronounced timpano. Because it resembles the bass a, drum. A timpani drum. Timpani yeah. drum. Um, Giorgio, he has some in his, in his book, um, because they're, they're very common in southern Italy, but often they're made with, they're sort of wrapped in eggplant, as, as you know. And a lot of times it'll be rice inside. But yours was wrapped in sheets of pasta. Yeah, it's basically like a... It's something in between a pasta dough and a pizza dough. More substantial than a pasta dough. You lay it in a, a basin, like an enamel basin. And the, the vessel is really, really important. It's really important. Because if it's not the right thickness, if it's not the right... The whole thing falls apart. And then it's filled with pasta, usually like ziti. Then you make a meat-based sauce, not a like ground beef, mm. but but a meat-based ragu. Okay. Whipped up eggs, not cooked, but you know, just sort of, and they help bind it. Okay. And then you make meatballs. Golf Small ball. meatballs. And okay. a lot of the the meatballs also have a lot of bread in them, which is the way my family makes meatballs, which makes them sort of incredibly light, and they just melt in your mouth. So then you have. Provolone, so just sort of cut up in chunks. Yeah. You put parmigiana. Yeah. And then you put Genoa salami. Already it's like heart stopping. Yeah, yeah. You take hard boiled eggs and you quarter them and you lay them in. So everything is done in layers. So that when you cut it open, you get these. You have this absolutely beautiful sort of striations of. So here's the thing <laughs> the thought that went through my head when the timpani was, mm. was cut was. That looks terrible. I mean, it's... No. <laughs> is it fair to say it's quite ugly-looking food? No, it's actually, when you cut it, it's beautiful. Yeah. Now, the thing is, the way it looks in the movie is not the way... And we are talking about something the size of a drum. I mean, or did you make it bigger just for the sake no, of the no, film? No, 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 That was actually a... That was a pretty reasonable size. Christmas dinner, but that's not even the dinner. That's the beginning of the dinner. It's insane. It's insane. 
it's a full day of at least of work. But it's really fun if you do it. In fact, it's really fun to do it with people. You know, they used to take them on picnics in Italy. Well, in I can imagine Italy, it's, my it's a portable thing. Yeah, they make the thing. They bring. You the need a flatbed truck to. Yeah, you need a flatbed or a mule or something. You know. This may be called Out to Lunch, but in their undying wisdom, my producers have skimped on my lunch entirely for today. But they have provided me with a large bag of pork scratchings to get me through. Oh, they're all good, actually. Mm. Time to spice up my life. I'll see what I did there. With a visit to the Brasserie of Light inside Selfridges and a triplet of desserts with the superstar Mel C. Brasserie of Light was interesting for me because it was the only one of the restaurants we featured in this series that I'd never been to before. But a lot of people I knew and respected had already said it was very good. Plus, it has a 20-foot high crystal sculpture of Pegasus leaping out of the wall. That has to be worth seeing in its own right. Now, in the original episode, we didn't get on to fashion and our shared love for show tunes. I think it's time we rectified that. So famously, Sporty Spice, mm-hmm. it wasn't actually a piss take as a moniker, was it? Did you apply it to yourself or how did that... When we first started out, we, you know, we were kind of looking at girl bands before us and we were going through all these different looks as a band, you know, and I'm pretty much dressing the same. But the thing is, we don't all suit the same stuff. We're, we're not, you know... So was there a move at one point so you must all have identical outfits, like the Ronettes? Yeah, we, we tried that whole thing. And, you know, we were self-styled, and it was all on very shoestring budget. We, Self-styled we is a grand name, looked, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> we looked dreadful. But, um, you know, whatever guys we tried, someone always looked ridiculous. So we, I don't know how it came about. We just, like, how we turned up to rehearsals, we were like, why don't we just... You know, wear what we wear. And I, well, part of, I think, growing up in the Northwest as well, sportswear has always been big. All the kids wearing sportswear up there. I mean, everyone's uh, you wearing know, it uh, now. A, a pair of sweatpants or a shell suit is, yeah. is a marvellous item of clothing. So, yeah, I just wore what I'd worn as a kid, as a dance student, and that was my, my tracking. And that's, yeah. I'm just curious as to whether, you know, the original ambition, that was what you imagined yourself doing for a career. Well, it's funny because when I left college and I was auditioning for shows, I was auditioning for chorus parts. Mm. And I was, I was a dancer, really, dancer. You know, I did sing, but, you know, I saw myself as a dancer. And I was thinking, oh, God, I'm not even getting chorus parts. But in my head, I wanted to be the leading lady. You know, so I was frustrated. But then the ultimate dream, which I thought was a fantasy, was to be a pop star. Oh, right. So that was, that yeah. was the ultimate dream. Yeah. It wasn't... You didn't want to be in Gypsy, you didn't it. want to be in... No, that was kind of... To me, this is quite funny, you know, when I... The realities of everything, but to me that was, like, a sensible option. What, being a pop star? <laughs> was just... No, going into theatre. Oh, going into theatre so, was the sensible Yeah, so I went to Performing Arts College because I really wanted to be a pop star, but I just thought, that's just a ridiculous notion. I should go and train and work in theatre. Of course, but actually, that's working, a steady job, isn't it? But working in theatre, getting to work in the theatre is an incredibly difficult thing as well. You know, so many people want to do it, and so few of those people get to do it. What I haven't talked about, because I've played my, I'm, I'm a bit of a stagey bin. I'm mm. you know, show tunes, I know mm-hmm. it all. Um, I'm all over it. Yeah. So your album, Stages, mm-hmm. well, they're all your albums. 
I was about to say, was that a vanity project? But was it one that you were just gagging to do yeah. because you wanted to sing those tunes? Yeah, it was a bit of a vanity project. And I think it was inspired by my time in Blood Brothers. You do one of the Blood Brothers tunes on it. I do, yeah, Tell Me It's Not True. It's and on you, there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and um, you do one from Company, from Sondheim. Yes. Uh, another hundred another people. Another people. Whoa, what a roast that song is. That's hard to sing. <laughs> I loved it, though. I love a challenge. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, the, you duet with Emma. Yeah, I know him so well from Chess. From Chess. Yeah. So, uh, what was the thinking on that? I'm sure it sold brilliant. Um... I think it did all right. Did it? <laughs> it, did all right. it didn't do right. Um, well, after my time in Blood Brothers, and then I went on because I, st- I think I started the album after that. And you know, I grew up going to lots of musicals, and of course, you know, training in musical theatre. So these were lots of the songs that I discovered through those times. And I also was lucky enough to play Mary Magdalene. Oh, in, in Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar in the arena tour, which was an incredible experience. Uh, yeah, and that just, I just thought, oh, I, I had a, a bunch of songs and I'd, I'd been recording with Peter Vitesi, who's one of my favourite collaborators, just an incredible musician and producer, songwriter. He clearly knows his stuff. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, you'd love him. He's like great jazz pianist, yeah. Amazing. The song selection, was it hard to do or was it? No, no. it was easy. Super easy. It was just all the ones I'd stuck in my mind over the years. And it's funny, actually. I am um, in my bedroom with my tape to tape in the 80s. I remember listening to, I think it was probably a Friday night, it was music night on Radio 2, and it was a musical theatre special. And I remember um, one of the singers was Claire Moore, and it was a Christmas um, edition. And there was, I think she did another 100 people, and that was the first time I'd heard it. And I, I just, like, was so intrigued by this song. And it's so wordy. If you haven't heard it, it's very wordy, very fast um, and very detailed. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, yeah, I just, I used to sing along to it all the time. And then I had this opportunity to do it in a studio. And uh, it was brilliant. I think there's actually footage of me doing it as well, which is funny. really? I think I collapsed at the end. I noticed you didn't choose um, I'm Not Going to Get Married Today, which is even faster. Oh, is it? Do you know that one from Company? Next time. (laughs) <laughs> um, on the next album oh sorry mouthful of scratchings there you should be used to that by now eating noises Tracy Ullman's lived a life you might know her from her hit BBC show of recent years Tracy Breaks the News but she's been doing this stuff for a very long time a lot of comedy sketch shows she had a few shows in the US where she was partly responsible for the birth of the Simpsons because they were originally an insert into one of her American shows but I didn't have time in the episode to include our chat about her glorious music career my music career was because of Kirsty McCall, the late, great Kirsty McCall. I was lucky enough to know her, and she let me sing They Don't Know, and You Broke My Heart in 17 Places, and that's what made it great, Kirsty McCall. And I was, it was just a fluke, because I was not, I'm not a great singer, and I certainly didn't keep doing albums and things. It was great fun, and I had a great fun. No, you didn't. You had, didn't... Six of the tracks off that album get into the charts? Yeah, and you had to sell a lot of records back then. A lot then. of records. Yeah, I was number two behind bloody Karma Chameleon for two weeks. I never made it to number one. Flipping boy, George. I, what I just find mystifying is how you were almost allowed to slip away and not do another album. Because I was crap. Because I'd run out of songs. Because Kirsty wasn't writing stuff and I'd... I'd 
done that bloody 60s Lurex miniskirt shit to death. You know, I wasn't very good. I, I wasn't that. Chrissy Hind. I wasn't <laughs> Cindy Lauper. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have... Well, so did the record company simply say... Well, they Tracy, never paid me. They're buggers. They never paid you. Oh, they're buggers. You should have earned stiff records. You should have earned hundreds of thousands no. of pounds out of that. I was with a record company called Stiff Records, oh, really? and I loved them because they had a T-shirt saying, "If it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck." And I was on the same label as Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Madness, and um, no, I mean it's they were buggers. They didn't really sort of like. But it kind of got a bit crazy, and I went to America and I got pregnant and I did other things. But uh, you know. I, I got to number eight in America with it. I worked on MTV, but it, it wasn't something I was always going to keep doing. Well, I still love that album. I'm so proud of some of it, and my I look back on those videos, and they were fun. And my daughter was at boarding school once, and she said there was some old program came on with old videos, and one of them was mine, and it was really embarrassing. It was when I was getting to the doing the drag ends, and she said, and the girl, the girls went, oh gosh, this is so embarrassing. Who's that? And she went, oh, I know. <laughs> It's my mother. But clearly, you had skills, you had talent. Did you learn anything at Italia Conti? Yeah, there were some wonderful teachers. I learnt to tap dance from a lady called Betty Wivel. We called her Bet- Betty Swivel. Yeah, ta di di ta ti ta tum bra pa. Ta di 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 ta tum tum bra pa. Can you still do a time step? I can. I got grade one. Did you? You did a bit of tapping? I did, because I was a slightly. Yeah, I, I wanted Did to Did you be. wear tights and a jock strap? No, I was the only one who didn't have to. You wouldn't do that? Knitted I was a trousers? Fat little boy with fat thighs. What the hell oh, I thought I was doing? Oh, you were a little bit chunk style back then. Look at me now. You're gorgeous. What Thank are you, you talking about? Um, but no, I was the only boy in the dance school and I did do tap because I was fascinated by yeah. Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. But Tap's a great thing. Can, so you can still do it? Yeah, we did will. You? When we finish, we'll do a couple of time steps. Okay, then. fine. We never did get time to practice those tap steps. Next time. Uh, if you can't wait, do have a look on YouTube at the time Sai taught me how to dance Gangnam style. Yes, really, I've got no shame, and I did manage it. A spot of Indian eating now. Um, for this episode, I chose Brigadier's, which is the cheaper sister restaurant to Jim Carner. It's done out to look like a sort of polo club with uh, cocktails on draft. And I thought it was suitable for the terrific Mark Gatiss, actor, writer, originally started out as part of the League of Gentlemen, went on to write for and act in Doctor Who and was the co-creator of Sherlock. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Really, I find this so fascinating. It's, I think it's called the Mandala Syndrome, um, which is where you... You think you know something. Yes. And, and it, recently, we experienced it en masse as the league. We were on our tour bus, right? <laughs> this tour bus sounds... Like... Oh, it was fun. And um, Back to Chris. Did you have, um, you know, Capri Sun in pouches? I want you to. No. Do you remember those? Yeah, I do. Yeah. No, we didn't. Have those. Yeah. It was all very... Missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, Capri Sun. I wish we'd had old Jamaica. Mm. Yes. 
Listen, we're doing it now. It's a disease. Um, we all have, we have a group memory of an episode of Armchair Thriller in which Martin Jarvis plays this sinister man who is blackmailing someone and sends her a box of chocolates through the post which turn out to actually be dog shit. We used to call it, as a, as a, as a short term, we used to call it dog shit chocolates. We all remember it. So we brought various things to watch on the bus. And I, someone gave me Armchair Thriller, Quiet as a Nun, the famous one, the Antonio Frey's one. And, and so I looked on the thing for Martin Jarvis. It's not there. But there is an episode, there's in fact an eight-parter called The Dog's Ransom based on a story by Patricia Highsmith. I thought, it can't be that, because it was Martin Jarvis, wasn't it? So we start watching it, and it's Benjamin Whitrow and uh, lots of wonderful people, and I'm going, what? So I literally, I actually tweeted, I said, can anyone tell, what's the episode of Armchair Thriller with Martin Jarvis? And then all the re- responses come back, it's not Martin Jarvis, it's this actor, and it's called A Dog's Ransom. It's going, and we literally went, no, it's not. And it is. Martin Jarvis was never in it. never in it. But we all remember it. If it was just me, I wouldn't feel so bad. But we genuinely did. We all... Now I'm starting to think, did we? Or did one of us say it was? And then we all... Would you like me to check with Martin? <laughs> I know. <laughs> have you, have you uh, met him and asked him? I, I, I know him very well. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's... Um, but it's, it's a real thing, that I think. And it makes you slightly frightened about your... The, the, reliance, the re- reliability of your own memory... When you believe something... What, I, what it's taught me to do is not say things with absolute conviction because you'd be made to look yeah. a fool. <laughs> um, obviously, you, you moved on with Stephen Moffat to do Sherlock. Yes. The first thing is, it's, it's, it's almost thrown as a, a, a term of abuse, but you're incredibly productive. Is this because you get bored easily? Or are you just anxious that you'll I have, take it all away? Yes, I have, that, I have a, a freelancer's terror of it going away still of course and that's very much based on years of it not happening I don't get bored easily I just like to work and I'm very interested in all sorts of things which I know is an accusation thrown to a, at a lot of people some good from very good people like <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci <laughs> I'm making no comparisons but, but um, I do find it hard not to get enthusiastic about all sorts of stuff. Also, I am genuinely offered some, just the most brilliant things. BBC Bristol, a few years ago, approached me and said, do you want, would you like to do a history of horror films? Yes, I would. And I'd be like, what could I do? I, of course I had to. I did a series of monologues uh, for the anniversary of decriminalisation of homosexuality a couple of years ago, and that was BBC Scotland asked me to curate this. I mean, it's literally, there's nothing I'd rather do. I was thrilled. And actually, I think if I'd come up with the idea and gone to them, it might not have happened, but it just... So that happens. I, I, do, I do often think maybe I should, you know, take longer. But the trouble is, we're not here for long. Wise words from Mark Gatiss there. He's a very busy man, but he made time for the sizzler of brigadiers, and that's not a euphemism. It is an enormous hot skillet full of kebabs and lamb chops and all the good stuff.
On to another meat feast with Fifty Shades of Grey star Jamie Dornan. Jamie and I nattered for hours. He's a big fan of red wines and put away the best part of a lovely bottle of Pinot Noir. I did help him while we spoke at London's Guinea Grill. Now, the Guinea Grill is what we call, you know, a restaurant institution. It's basically a pub off Berkeley Square, but it's famed for the things it does with its beef and people lose whole days, whole weeks there. Jamie knows his food and had a few stories of eating in London, which do leave something to be desired. Do you remember any particular food experiences when you moved to London? I'll tell you a pretty grim food uh, existence I had in London. The first place I lived in, I stayed on mate's sofa for two weeks. I actually thought I was going to be there for about three months, but after two weeks he kicked me out. I was like, fuck, this is real. (laughs) I was working working full-time in a pub in Knightsbridge, but living in Hackney, on Hackney Road. And this was 2002. It really genuinely was before, like, shortage was even a thing. I lived in shortage, like, and it wasn't cool. It was getting cool, but, like, it wasn't a thing then. It's now not cool anymore. I think shortage has gone full circle. I lived in this council estate uh, with a red door. Uh, I drive past all the time now. I shared a toilet with... Uh, eight strangers that was up up a very cold flight of stairs to go to I had this little bed set there was a Chinese takeaway did sort of fish and chips as well one of those jobs directly opposite my front door and I didn't have any money and you know I was working in a pub and um, the guy there who was called Frank I believe don't know if that um, restaurant take restaurant <laughs> takeaway place <laughs> is still there but he used to do me a um Half, half rice, half chips with gravy on it, and I honestly made, honestly ate that every day. For how months. much did he charge you for half uh, chips, half gravy? A quid, a quid. Yeah, and that that carb, carb on carb, the the the, the denim on denim of food. Yeah, got you, <laughs> it sustained you through. Sustained me very well. I mean, then I'd go to the pub, and it was one of those pubs that did two meals for a fiver. So I could eat, I would eat sort of scraps at the pub and, you know, um, but that was kind of how I um, survived. I mean, no nutrients whatsoever going into my system. It must be so unhealthy, but I was like modelling a bit. Uh, I'm curious, do you read reviews? Uh, so <laughs> Sometimes. No, I'm funny, like, I'm not one of those people, I sort of honestly don't believe people who say they've never read reviews, they don't read reviews. It's just in this day and age, it's so hard to fucking avoid. And also, you've got no matter what you put in place, you still got your publicist and your agent. If someone's someone sent, especially if it's good. Yeah. It, by the way, if it's good, it's always sent to you. It's a very strange thing for an actor to say they're their agent or publicist. Like, if there's any great reviews, don't send them to me. What the fuck? Like, you, you, you know, you need to have some sort of verification that you're doing good work when you think it's good. I think about it. Reviews are funny because sometimes. You know, I've had absolute howler reviews in my time, and I've had unbelievable reviews. And in the last year or so, I've had great Private Wars, the best uh, reviews I've had, probably, and uh, maybe The Fall, I don't know. But like, so, you know, you're dealing with some unbelievable reviews. And then, like, something like 50 Seeds, horrendous, like some of the stuff it said. I'm still scared. What's the worst thing that anybody's uh, ever said, said about you? It, someone who writes for the. New Science Christian Chronicle or something. Which oh, excellent! I presume we're all on their fucking podcast. Anyway, um, some some guy there wrote that uh, I had all the charisma of oatmeal, <laughs> which I actually thought was quite funny. And 
Uh, by the way, just for the record, I quite like oatmeal. Yeah, okay, I think that's unfair, okay. especially if you jazz it up with a bit of honey or something. Yeah, sure. It can, um, be, quite, it can be quite the I think he was magnetic saying, yes, breakfast yeah, option. Exactly. I think I, he was saying I had it without the accoutrement. Ah. Um, so anyway, What's so a Presbyterian oatmeal? Fucking exactly, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but the thing is, I, what I struggle with sometimes is with reviews, bad ones, what I find really troubling is when I agree with everything they say. Oh. And that's happened to me. And I've been like, oh, fuck this guy, who does he think he is or she is? And why is he saying that? And then I'm like, oh, no, they've nailed it. Yeah, they've absolutely nailed it. That's so right. Like, that's so right. And, you know, and it makes you up your game. And, you know, criticism is, is important. Jamie Dornan, chips, rice and gravy. I like Jamie very much, but I am not going to be adding his eating habits to my repertoire anytime soon. Truffles made an appearance on several occasions while I was lunching. Richard E. Grant obviously gave them a good sniff. They were even involved in the sushi I shared with Alex Kingston. One particular person with a truffle story of his own was Jason Isaacs, uh, the great actor who's played Lucius Malfoy and Captain Lorca in uh, Star Trek Discovery. Jason, well, he likes a good story. And here is one of those. We shot, I shot a series called Dig in Israel that had to stop because Hamas decided to start a war because they were so offended by the script. And uh, we, went to Cro- Thanks. we went to Croatia to finish because Roman cities look the same all over the world. So we were shooting in Split and Dubrovnik and places. We went up into the woods on a day off, me and um, Emma and the girls, to a tiny little pub. Uh, where, and it's in an area where they... Uh, catch truffles, whatever, hunt truffles, yeah. gather truffles, snuffle truffles yeah. with dogs, dogs. with pigs. Done. And so I, I said, Do you have anything to eat? And they said, well, We have truffle pastas. Do you have anything else? They went, No, that's all we have truffle pastas. I went, Okay, we'll have four truffle pastas. Pasta came and they got this gigantic, kind of softball sized piece of truffle and they started shaving it over the, the plate until there was a mountain of truffles. I'd never seen that much before. And, uh, and we ate it and we all, it was so rich, we all passed out on the table <laughs> and it was a fiver each. Oh, that um, that size truffle will be a hundred grand in America. In if you uh, piece of advice, if you find yourself in a restaurant that is offering, usually it's white truffles when mm. they come and they shave, and they're meant to do it to a certain weight or volume. And so when they start shaving, if oh. you, if you have this in you, I'm very bad at it. Yeah. You turn to the waiter and you say, "Did you see the game last night?" <laughs> and you start talking to them about whatever match, whatever it is, you, you work out if there was a football... Arsenal play Spurs. Distract uh, them. Djokovic played... You distract them. That is, that is. Is, that's what you're meant to do. And they keep on shaving. That's the idea. So I, the guy told me, I'm sure this is rubbish, I wish I wasn't asking you because you're now going to tell me it's nonsense, that the magic of truffles, the reason they need pigs and dogs to track them down, is that they can never tell where they're going to appear. And they appear only after an electrical storm. And the, the trees or the ground have been hit, they think, by lightning, and that's why it grows there. And there's something slightly alien-like about them. I would have no way of verifying that. There are an enormous number of myths about them. A lot of them are pointless because they don't actually taste of anything. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that does taste of something. It How was it? absolutely fucking delicious. <laughs> Any of us with a, a, a front-facing, forward-facing job, yeah. as I describe it, have to sort of deal with how other people see us. Yeah. Do you ever think about it? The, the idea, Jason Isaacs, he's sexy, he's rugged. <laughs> the thing is, and he's first of all, in my, in my yeah. life, I attract no second looks from anyone, never have. You know, not even my wife. And so I, I, I take the tube every day and I go to the supermarket every do, day. Do you and stuff, you know. genuinely not get spotted no. on the tube? No. I mean, once in a blue moon, but very, very rarely. My job is to disappear into the things that I do. I try and do that. 
once in a blue moon, I play a part which is not like the parts I normally play, which is meant to be the sexy hero type person. So when I did case histories, uh, I went down the gym a lot and starved, essentially, since I knew he had his shirt off. And, and Kate Atkinson had said to me, when I was asking her lots of questions about Jackson Brody... She's a writer. She's a writer. Uh, she's a brilliant writer of uh, very highbrow literary books and slightly slummed it to write these award-winning Jackson Brody books as well, um, which were fabulous, and we adapted them for, for television. And I kept on asking her questions about his background, and at some point she just exasperated and gave up. And she went, look, he's just a cipher. He's a conduit for women's fantasies. Just make any decisions you like about his character that make him more attractive to women. And I went, oh, OK. So, and that was the character that your wife particularly liked. Exactly. So I went down the gym a lot and had lots of fake tattoos. And, and this is a guy who was a sucker for lost girls, women in trouble, you know, and will, will do anything heroically and self-sacrificially for that. And I was picking my kids up from school, as I normally did, with all the people who'd seen me every day for years. And all of a sudden, because they'd seen me with my shirt off, uh, and because this guy was rescuing lost girls, I got loads more attention from the mums at the school gate, and I, I had to go, look, that was then, this is now, I lift my T-shirt up and show my, you know, my middle-aged belly, and I go, it was a job, it's a part. I wouldn't, I wouldn't step in front of you if a bunch of skinners were running. I'd run the other direction. Um, <laughs> so uh, I never get confused with that. I do think people think of me uh, that way sometimes because of parts they like. And people like the bad guys. People often find bad guys sexy, but there's, there's no part of me. That, uh, I, the people I play are infinitely more confident and more powerful and braver and, and, or more evil or, or more fill-in-the-blank than I am. I'm a, I'm a blank slate, frankly. Um, I'm an empty vessel. Oh, he's so modest, isn't he? I had a 28-inch waist once. I'm just not sure where I left it. Producer, get me some more scratchings. Ah, oh, here they are. Excellent stuff. Um, I don't just eat posh. I'm happy to eat in a pub, which is exactly what I did when I went out to lunch with Grayson Perry, the Turner Prize winning artist. Uh, we have known each other for a little while, so it was easy for me to get in touch and ask him where he'd like to go. And he nominated Islington's Draper's Arms, where we went for a pint and some duck hearts and a whole bunch of other things besides. There's lots of leftovers I wanted to include here. But here's us both reminiscing about the club scene that started the New Romantics back in the very early 1980s. God, we're old. Were you sharing a squat with George O'Dowd? No. Later boy George? I, I knew George O'Dowd very sort of tangentially through um, my girlfriend's sister, who li- did live in the same squat as him. Did you see... So the... he was knocking around. So the, the, the scene that was him... Or George and Marilyn. No, I lived in the same squat as Marilyn briefly. Oh, did you? Yeah. I was sort of, I'm a bit younger than you, I was sort of on the edges of that scene in London, which was a kind of neuromatic, grew in blitz, and then they all started topping the charts. Did you see anything in Marilyn? I mean, was... was... No, he was much more... They were a performance, weren't they? That just extended out of their bedrooms. I was a shy, hetero... Oh, that's a good point. They were all gay. Yeah, they were very gay and very in-your-face and quite sort of... Not aggressive, but assertive, you know, where I was kind of a much shyer at the time. So you didn't see a, a world there and go, ooh, that's for me? Mm-mm. I enjoyed the club scene for a while. We had, you know, had fun with it. But, um... Where did you go? My favourite one was Taboo. <laughs> but that, I mean, that was... Bowery. The... Yeah. That was really fun. And it was anything went there. And it was, you know, very hedonistic. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed that whole scene. Did you know Lee Bowery at all? But, yeah. 
But I never saw him outside. I don't think I've ever seen him outside. Well, he's gone now, but I didn't see him outside of the, uh, of the outfits. I did a few times. I went to his flat a few times with him and Trojan, and, um, yeah, he was a really nice guy, actually, a very... You know, like a lot of creative people, he was very sensitive, really, you know, but he was... Have you ever read his um, the biography written by Sue Tilly? I haven't. Is that, well, that's Fat Sue. That's um, yeah, uh, and that's quite funny. Yeah, the, the benefit supervisor, as pictured by um, Lucian Freud. Yeah. All done. Yes, thank you very much. There's a very funny scene in it where where they're, they're like on a day trip to some provincial town and they're sort of bored and he's sort of wandering around. They go into an Oxfam shop, and his kind of shtick was to kind of sort of try and embarrass people. So he would kind of he deliberately caught his wig on a on a kind of postcard rack in the shop and pretended not to notice and then sort of dared the shop assistant to point it out to him, which is pretty cruel, but very <laughs> funny as well. But, I mean, that's the kind of definition, you know, talk about narcissism, that is seeking to be the centre of attention, which was the brilliance of Blitz <laughs> and the new romantics and all of it, when it was real... It went mainstream, Grayson. It went mainstream. What I like about that era was it was amateur. Everybody was stitching in their bedrooms, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, Lee Barry was knocking up the costumes in his, in his back bedroom on a sewing machine, and nobody did it for the money particularly, though you know, many of the people from that era have gone on to have very successful careers. And um, there was something charming about that. And I think now you have the feeling that Every niche of a kind of interesting cultural world has been professionalised and there's someone trying to sell it to you, whatever it is. I've got a couple of scratchings left to snaffle. Hang on. Oh, I've got loads, actually. It's great. While we listen to my last clip, this one comes from my lunch with Alex Kingston, the actress known for her parts as Elizabeth Corday in ER and as River Song in Doctor Who. I took her to Shisu. That's spelled C-H-I-S-O-U, and that's because I want you to find it. It's a very, very good Japanese restaurant off London's Oxford Street. So the thing about Alex is that she lived in Los Angeles for 20 years, where sushi is very, very good. She ate loads of it while she lived in LA. She's been back in London for two years and hasn't touched any. So this gave me the opportunity to reintroduce her to her love for Japanese food. In 2013, Alex played Lady Macbeth opposite Kenneth Branagh. It started at Manchester International Festival before later moving to the Big Apple. I could have played that role for the rest of my life. I loved it. It's literally like ER. I could have done ER for the rest of my life. I could have played River Song for the rest of my life. You know, if you if you have something that is just you're enjoying so much, I loved the production. I loved working so, with Ken. So people who don't know, it was at the Manchester International Festival, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, people will assume that with a cast list, including yourself and Ken Branagh, it was a massive thing. But it, it was almost one of those student black boxes. We were in a, seating for two twenty. We were in a deconsecrated church. So it was actually where the Halle Orchestra rehearsed. We had to m- create the production around the interior of the church. Um, so we were sort of, it was very long, like people watching sort of a tennis match in a way. Um, and then we were at the armory um, and the show was kind of reinvented for the space of the armory, which is massive. So the audience in New York were actually led into this big space when we had turned the entire armory into a heath. 
So they were led through standing stones and mist and darkness, through Stonehenge, into a sort of a, a chapel area where they then sat and the play then took place. It was extraordinary. I mean, I understood about having to sort of save your energy from watching Ken. If you weren't on the stage, you were walking around to get to the next entrance to go back on stage. So it was, again, sort of endless. You circled that, that church? Yes. A quick changes, literally, because it was in... We had mud, rain and fire. So I would be covered in mud, soaked, and have to do a quick change out of my costume. And literally, all we had was a washing up bowl. And so literally, I had to have to strip off starkers stand in this washing up bowl and have the costume ladies try and wash me down and, and then put me in uh, my nighty order. I mean, it was sort of, but, you know, that's theatre, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the poor darling, how she suffered for her art. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that supersized helping of Out to Lunch. It's been a hell of a series, so thank you to all my guests for taking the time to peruse the menus with me and to all the restaurants who hosted us along the way. Um, I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear that we're already making a second series which will drop later this year. Subscribe now and you'll find it in your feeds when the time comes. Until then, do have a listen to the past episodes and please share and rate and review us because we love that and it also helps others to find us. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production and was brought to you by Josh Gibbs, Selena Reem, Darby Doris and Steve Ackerman. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. Thanks for letting me take you out to lunch. Bye for now.